I'm Aaron Armstrong. I'm Pete Moran. And we love to watch. We love to watch. Meteor shit. <laughs> famous line from this it is it is one of the only lines in horror movies that has just like so pervaded my my language my <laughs> brother's language that like i say it all the time and not just when i go to like an astrophysics museum or like when you just go take a shit like yeah. meteor shit meteor it's just a normal shit peter <laughs> when something and something when something goes wrong but in a comical fashion it's usually when it pops it up like how how often in your life do things both go wrong but in a comical fashion um when when i like trip in a way that doesn't actually hurt me hurt you? But in a way that's no. funnier more than it hurts Okay, yeah, that tracks. It feels like probably those are few and far between, so that's why you don't say it that often. <laughs> but when you do, it's meaningful. But what we love to watch, we're a movie podcast. We pick a theme, we do movies over the course of that month around that theme. And if we remember, we compare and contrast. And we're our most, most holy season. Uh, this is what we look forward to every year. Um, uh, on All the other months are ranked um, 11th, tied. <laughs> And uh, number one or twelfth? Will they all be? I don't know how that would work. Probably twelfth. <laughs> They're all number two. They're all tied for number. Well, two. no, I'm just saying there's a long gap mm-hmm. between like March. Fuck March. Mm-hmm. I would rate number two as leap month, a fictional month that happens um, during a particular time cataclysm that I just made up right now. I mean, yeah. I mean, if you're trapped in the time, February. If you're trapped in the time cataclysm, yeah, that's a fun place to be. Over, say, I don't know, August. (laughs) But yeah, I mean, this it's October. It's Spooktober. Um, If you're wondering where our horror movie recap, uh, what we're watching this year was, it was last week. Go check the feed. Scroll down just slightly. Like put a tiny amount of effort into it and find it. It's, It's not that hard. It's the next one. Or depending on how your podcasts are rearranged, it might be the the one above it. Mm-hmm. I, but either I, way, it's it's right there. You, like you stop. Really have, you really <laughs> I'm very angry little, about this. How little faith you have in our our audience? <laughs> well, they're the ones mad at me. <laughs> um, but yeah, <laughs> are you turning into a creep show character? A paranoid. Everyone's yelling radio. at me. Yeah. It's, I'm like I'm like the Pontypool guy now. <laughs> uh, but yeah, we're uh, we're doing some. We're really excited about this month. Uh, it, it always is kind of a little bit of a process to pick what we're doing for Spooktober, just because it feels like while we don't relegate horror themed months to October, we want to do something special. And then we also want to do something that's going to lead to something that can be fun for a spooktacular. Uh, Because you can have a spooktober without a spooktacular, but I mean, is it even a spooktober if you don't end it with a spooktacular, Peter? I don't think so. It's anti-spook-spook-anti- but it's not good. Yeah, it's an anti-spook Timex. 
which is also a watch. Anti-diamond. Cheaper, cheaper than a cheap uh, a time spook Rolex. Mm-hmm. I'm just saying two words. I'm not even really pausing all that much. I think but, most people would say what you're saying is nothing. Yeah, I mean, most people. I mean, these are the same people that can't scroll up one notch, Peter. Mm-hmm. Yeah, your persecution complex is getting no better. <laughs> I, don't, I don't need to be judged by these people. Who are these people? Um, but yeah, so we. Uh, but I think we stumbled into one that was like such a such a spectacular idea for Spooktober that we six years ago or five years ago, whenever it was, we were like, well, we're never going to do this because this feels like too much. So, which was do anthology horror movies. So let's just pick a few faves. And as we picked a few faves, we uh, and combined them to like a super. Super anthology episode, which we'll probably re-release sometime during this month, because why not? Unless it's terrible. I don't know if we've it's been a, it's been a while. Could be terrible. Um, but we, because we just thought like, yeah, you know, a is there that many good at the time? We're like, is there not is there enough anthology horror movies for us to do a month? But also, like that feels just like a lot of content. Like, what are we gonna do? Talk about each segment for forty minutes? Like, we're never gonna do it. So let's just do a big spooktacular, and then we'll we'll go away from it. But. There were a few Peter that we were like, well, but let's not do anything from Creepshow because Creepshow works really well as a movie and we may want to do that. And we're like, let's not do anything from the first VHS either because that one could be fun to do. You know, it's been a few years. If anything, Peter and I have only watched more anthology horror movies during our Spooktober. It seemed like a really fun idea and it also seemed like a really fun idea to end with a spooktacular of a series that Peter and I are tremendously fond of um so to get there we're going to start out today with creep show we're going to next week we're going to do tales from the hood which is one as we'll talk about next week one that i watched during a uh spooktober that i kind of passed over because so many reviews at the time are like this is stupid or and it's fucking fantastic uh, and also one thing i'm really excited about it is that one of those movies people. that it's 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 uh, reputation has completely flipped with time the the, oh. the the uh the cult for that audience that uh particular movie has completely flipped its reputation yeah. and I, i'm really excited about that one too because peter i think we are the two perfect people to cover all the topics in that movie so i'm glad we're covering it because if we don't cover it you're not going to find a better people to cover that movie so yeah if you want to hear me um do an awkward apologia in the first five minutes of the episode please tune in next week and not me i'm gonna say we're definitely right right people right time Mm -hmm. to cover tales tales from the hood but no it is a fantastic movie i'm excited to yeah awkwardly apologize our way through it uh we should have probably got a guest but i mean we can't do it we haven't done guests in we haven't done guests in so long but we even know how to talk to a guest i i know uh and then we're doing uh, Tales from the Crypt, Vault of Horror. We did – I think we did Blind Alleyways for – which from the original Tales from the Crypt for our spooktacular. Uh, but I – you know, there's – that's one out of like ten segments between those two movies. And, uh, blind, uh, you know, we can talk about Blind Alleyways again because it is great. Yeah, yeah. We don't usually repeat movies, but that'll be great. And the fun thing about doing Creepshow and the Tales from the Crypt dash vault of horror um is that we're kind of doing two different completely two completely different eras and two completely different studio systems um take on ec comics EC comics yeah yeah which I'll, I'll talk about a little bit tonight we're not doing a full breakdown of ec comics but i have read 
I don't know, a few hundred individual stories from Easy Comics because I bought them. Because they've uh, they've put out these collections, these beautiful hardcover collections um, uh, that'll mix in from the different eras. So mm. um, I have op- have read a few of them and some of the crime stories are like really surprisingly good and some of the horror stories are like blah. And then you'll read a horror story and it'll be like, oh my God, that's, <laughs> that's the sort of thing that's stuck in these creators' minds long enough that, you know, 30 years after this comic, after this uh, particular publisher stopped making EC Comics, the... The, uh, the, the the particular production companies would be like, yep, let's go back to the wall. Let's go back there. <laughs> so we'll yeah. talk all that with Tales from the Crypt. Uh, in a yeah. Weeks. I uh, I didn't watch them for Creepshow, even though it would be thematically – or didn't read any for Creepshow, even though it would be thematically appropriate. But I did – I was planning to read some uh, this weekend before we do Tales from the Crypt and Vault of Horror. So I am excited to check, check into those. Um, you can probably because- find a lot of them online because they, they stopped printing – the ones that you actually care about. They stopped printing Vault of Horror, Tales from the Crypt, and Haunt of Fear in the mid-50s, I think 56. Yeah. Um, and then the EC Comics just focused on Mad Magazine after that. Uh. Yeah. No, I'm going to be reading exclusively Mad Magazine. <laughs> so I bet you I bet you now almost all of those are just like in, in PDF collections online. I bet you don't have to pay money for it. But I, do uh, I think, lo- that, I I think they the have hardcover. a lot on Comixology. Yeah, so. I do love the hardcover collections, though, just to get that out of the way. Yeah, I'm, I mean, I, if I can read some Mad Magazine, who doesn't like when, like, instead of Biff in, like, a Back to the Future type situation, his name is, like, Diff, because mm-hmm. he's dumb. Mm-hmm. And, and the, the joke is that he's Biff, but he's dumber than normal Biff. Yeah, he's dumber than normal Biff. Um, hey... Does anyone uh, – probably a larger topic, but did, does anyone write a grapple with the fact that Mad Magazine was terrible? <laughs> um, I remember as a kid being like, it's pretty cool I get these references. I'll think this is funny in a couple years. And yeah, then I, I read it as a teenager and I was like, this isn't funny. <laughs> I did get it as a kid and I got it and I didn't like it. And then I, yeah, I did the same thing. I'm like, oh, I don't think this is funny. Maybe it was funny, Peter. Maybe we got like – you know, uh, 80s, 90s, 2000s band magazine. They were out of bits. Only so many movies that you can slightly change. Uh, but they, I think they were the epic movie of its day. That's my stake. But we don't have time to talk about that. What uh, if, what if, hypothetically speaking, people were very open to the idea that Mad Magazine sucked because we all had to do that thing where we were like, it was like a, a bored Tuesday afternoon and we were like, I guess I'll watch Mad TV. <laughs> What is a worse show that's that's birthed more talent? Uh, Man TV news? is so, so that's true. Man TV is so bad, and yet like its pedigree is like yeah. <laughs> it's like Jordan Peele and Andy. I know Daly so came from so there. many funny funny people came from that. Yeah, I I even watching clips like I've I that are people are like this is so funny, which I you know is somewhat curated for for like a YouTube clip. Uh, it's not very good usually. No. Um, Most of the bits are about like what if there was a mentally challenged child or what if there was an Asian lady? What if there was someone who was socially awkward? <laughs> yeah. Cool. Uh, anyway. Yeah. So we're ending though. So Peter and I have been pretty consistently uh, very like vocal champions of found footage as a very effective horror medium. There's good movies they're shitty movies uh just like literally every other subgenre of horror but i think there was a time where too many horror fans or too many movie fans were kind of like 
dismissing it as lazy. And one thing we talked about, I forget what found footage movie we did where we talked about this is like, in some ways it is like a, um, a, a, a modern version of like the type of horror that HP Lovecraft was writing, not necessarily from the perspective of like uh, cosmic or horror, which obviously there's some of that in found footage, but more from the perspective of, you know, Lovecraft loved to write from a first person perspective from like a newspaper reporter or a man of science or something like that, who was basically writing about the events as he was experiencing them or short after. And, you know, that's not just a Lovecraft, thing, but Lovecraft definitely did it, I think, more than most authors, and that it was kind of like his fallback uh, mode, where it was almost always, it wasn't an omniscient narrator, it wasn't from the third person, it wasn't someone telling the story, it was almost always like someone who was purposefully documenting the events as they uh, blew his mind, and found footage very much, I think, exists on that spectrum. Like, it is... And and because you're so, you know, in the same way Lovecraft can be effective as you're, like, reading these person's writings and you're feeling, like, caught up in what they're experiencing and you're picturing yourself in their shoes, found footage almost acts as that that literalized where you are watching everything from a first-person perspective as, as, as people are, especially when it's... Um, Especially when the the cameras are not stylistic, but uh, part of the actual movie themselves, that they exist in the movie, that they're documenting what you're seeing for some reason. And then you're seeing the footage, however it was assembled, after the fact. And I don't think uh, – I think that genre can be very effective. There's some fantastic uh, uh, found footage horror movies. I, I don't think there's a genre that more consistently makes me jump because – uh, that's, I mean, that's kind of what it's designed to do. You're, you're watching it like it's happening to you. And so sometimes it's more, well, something like possession or other movies like that may, may, or in the mouth of madness may scare me on a more visceral, like, you know, inside my bone level, like that immediate thrill is more, I think, prevalent in a found footage horror movie. And I don't think there's a series that does found footage better than the VHS series. And you and I have been very vocal, uh, def- defenders or, uh, evangelical about that series, even VHS viral, which we've talked about a few times where, the wraparound segment is terrible, but the other, the actual three segments in that movie are, are good to great. Uh, and so for our spooktacular, we're doing all of them, including the new one that's coming out on the 20th, VHS 99. So we're going to do VHS, VHS 2, VHS Viral, VHS 94, which came out last year. That was a f- great end of Spooktober surprise. And then VHS 99. So, And they're uh, such fun party movies. Like, I actually – I I made a plan with a friend of mine last week. I told him I was revisiting all those. He's like, oh, can we do, like, a projector night in your backyard and watch a couple of them? Like, obviously, yeah. I, won't be able to, I won't be able to watch all of them in one night. But he's like, can we do, like, one and two in your backyard? And I was like, yeah, sure. That'd be yeah. great. Yeah. I'd love that. Yeah, that sounds like a blast. Because, yeah, they are great party movies. They are so much fun. And they – so, we're yeah, I'm, I'm really excited to talk about all of them. Um, uh, talk about uh, – I think the, the ending segment in VHS 1 is probably the most scared I've ever been as an adult. I'll save that story for when we get into it uh, about why I was so scared. Uh, but, yeah, I'm excited to do that. It's going to be a little bit of uh, how how much can we – keep the time going because i think that's what (laughs) yeah (laughs) even if we only spend 10 minutes per segment i think we're topping off at 25 segments uh but uh you know i guess we'll uh 
we'll, we'll see what happens. We're recording it in two parts. We're going to try to get most of it done before Spooktober and then watch 99 when it comes out on the 20th. And I think we figured out one day, Peter, uh, between my travel and your travel during October that we can record. Uh, yeah. So no one get COVID. <laughs> <laughs> or, the, or the 99 part will be a t- DVD. Uh, but yeah. So we're excited for that. We're also excited, hopefully, you know, uh, that you are enjoying our Godzilla uh, 10-week event. Uh, but if not, hopefully this is kind of a return to some of the bread and butter that you probably started listening to this podcast on. So uh, we're excited to get back to non-Godzilla-related movies and get back to uh, hitting what we do best, I think, which is horror movies. So we're starting tonight with Creepshow. Um, yeah, and I think it's probably it's probably a good start for a couple reasons. One... Just get it out of the way. Aaron just talked about it. We're going to have to figure out how to stop watch ourselves to, so that we can actually survive as we escalate the number of movies that we're covering <laughs> per episode. Yeah. Um, two, I think Creepshow is a perfect introduction to anybody that isn't sure if they like anthology horror movies because um, it is a uh, goofball off-the-wall horror comedy that if you don't really like horror movies, you can probably like it. If you do like horror movies, you can probably be like, oh, shit, that was actually pretty creepy. Like, despite all yeah. the cartoon, the cartoon glossy colors is pretty creepy. And I feel like this is a good opportunity for me to talk about the twin inspirations for Creepshow because they're the twin inspirations for the anthology horror genre um, as a whole. Yeah, I, I think that is a good starting point. And, you know, Peter, you and I both watched... Uh, again, weirdly, on the exact same night, uh, we watched Tales from the uh, Tales of the Uncanny, which yes. is which is basically a pop doc on anthology uh, horror movies. It's not like it's good in the way all of those movies are good, where uh, you get to see scenes from movies that you like. You get to hear like Joe Dante talk about it for for thirty seconds, and then there's like a third of the movies you've never heard of before, and you quickly scramble to your list because it looks cool as shit. Uh, so it's valuable. I, I did. I, I wish I had caught it earlier, but I did find the list on Letterboxd of every movie that's mentioned in there. Yeah. Which- Really lets you actually focus on what the movie's saying as opposed to being like <laughs> on your phone every 20 seconds. Yeah. Be like, I want to see that. I want to see that. Wait, how have I not seen the film? Yeah, why have I never heard of this? Be, is this good or bad? That can be the other problem with uh, – it's funny when you look at some of those ratings of those movies like, oh, I, I realize why I've never heard of this. And then there's other like – we were talking about Spirits of the Dead where I'm like, how the fuck have I never heard of this? Like yeah. I'm watching that – Watching that this month, but uh, the, the and the thing- um, one of the people that worked on it, not the director, is Kirla Janice, who's a horror, horror, true horror scholar. I think is the best way to say it in one word, um, because she has written um, multiple, multiple uh, like books and, and uh, exhaustive essays about different subgenres. Her most notable, probably, work is um, House of Psychotic Women, which is a great book. Great book. It's about me- uh, women's mental health in horror movies and, and American cinema in general. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's an awesome book. Um, and then the other most notable thing you probably know her from is uh, she did a, a horror anthology movie last year um, that really blew up because people suddenly were like, people that didn't know what folk horror movies were, were like, hey, like, 
that's what you call these things. <laughs> um, and then the other one, uh, and then the other pe- the people who were like already knew the term folk horror really respected this documentary for being exhaustive because it's it's nearly three hours. It's called yeah. Woodlands Dark and Dark and Days Bewitched: A History of Folk Horror. Yeah. Um, it's really great. <laughs> um, it is. It's on Shutter is, too. Yeah. She is. Yeah. It's on Shutter. Unlike Shutter Tales is, of the Uncanny, which I had to rent on YouTube. Yeah. Same. Um. It's it's on uh, the uh, full quarter docu- documentary is on Shutter right now because they have a um, an agreement with Severin right now to host a bunch of those folk horror movies because Severin put out that incredible folk horror box set which she helped curate. Um, so she's and she helped uh, she helped edit and, and gather a bunch of essays for a booklet like truly Criterion level work and like. I don't know, probably years of her, of her life on this folk horror project for us. Like, truly a, a great sacrifice for, for horror nerds. Yeah, she's so like I, the, I, I want to tout her name a little she's bit. She's like the nanny and Damien, but for curating folk horror. She's like, everything for you, folk horror aficionados. And then she goes back to her office to yeah, she goes back clips, to from, <laughs> clips from a 1950s yeah, she doesn't jump she off, on MBHS. She doesn't jump off anything. Um, she but she does go. She back gets to a good office. jump onto her research. She does, as far as we know, her office is downstairs. <laughs> so that may be where the similarities end. But she does it all for for us. But I think the other reason why one of the kind of the, tales of the uncanny was like a Zoom movie that they did when uh, it was hard to do stuff. So it's, it's I don't think it's as well put together as um, the folklore documentary, but it's like it's still interesting, and they got they got some good interviews. Yeah, I think I think their access may have been better because it was COVID. Never. That, that's like, what oh. they said. They said they got way more people than they would have normally who were willing to participate in it. Uh, but sometimes but, they only use sound clips because the the yeah. uh, video is so shitty. <laughs> but uh, one thing they did is like I think part try to give it a hook is they had everyone vote on their top five horror anthology movies and uh creep show was the was the winner of those like mm-hmm. 70 critics and and filmmakers and stuff like that so i also think like that is a good reason to start as any they the you know creep show was kind of called out for being uh not just accessible but i also think it really works as a, a complete movie one of the things that we're going to tap into a little bit and i actually think all the movies that we're covering for the most part work pretty well as like a a, a complete movie but they talk a lot about how how hard the wraparound segments are or how hard it is to try to give a theme to these some sometimes and that like you know that that a good wraparound section can 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 uh, make a a make a good anthology movie great, and a bad one can really sink it. And we'll probably talk a little bit about that with VHS Viral, um, but it doesn't always have to be. It doesn't always have to be great. But this is one where kind of all of it. It does feel like a complete movie, not just because there's a there's a th- they're they're all directed by the same. George Romero directs the entire movie. Some anthology horror movies have like different directors produce different segments. We'll talk about talk about some movies where that's that's the case. But there's a consistency. There's a consistency in the writing. Stephen King. Uh, there's a consistency in the special effects with Tom Savini, who's trying to ape the EC Comics component. There's a consistency of director, and so I do think this does feel like a a true movie movie even though it has segmented stories so that's another reason why i think it makes a ton of sense to start here because it it uh it feels complete 
Yeah, yeah, it, it, it's it's um it's a perfect entry point. It's also like I I sort of the, in some senses the pinnacle of the genre because it's the most fun sort of uh piece of adventure that we we uh, gotten out of the genre probably. There are scarier anthology uh, movies. There are funnier ones. Um, but none that have this sort of wonderful balance that feel like truly two horror greats voices are coming through. And um, yeah, let me let me talk about before we get into kind of like we're, we're kind of have to recap some of the stuff we've done in, in our anthology horror episode. But before we get to that, I want to talk about EC Comics really quickly, um, which I'll talk about again, obviously, in a couple weeks, but not to this extent. Um, so EC Comics or en- entertaining comics, which is. I know one calls them entertaining comics. You just call them EC Comics. Um, they were a, uh, a comics label, uh, an American comics label, um, that didn't just make horror um, horror shorts. They did crime fiction, satire, sci-fi, military fiction, like um, weird, <laughs> like, <laughs> what, do you, what do you call like cavemen fighting? I don't know, like medieval or like, uh, I don't know, ancient... Uh, ancient adventurism i don't know but um they were very much short form horror stories where um the uh the head of the company um william gaines so uh, max gaines headed up the company and his son took it over and really like made it into what it was uh what it became um William Gaines would like stay up late and read like short horror fiction and read weird horror magazines and stuff and be like, that's an awesome concept. That's an awesome concept. And then immediately hire a bunch of artists that would go on to be like some of the greats in uh, comics history, like Frank Frazetta, um, legendary names in in, um, in comics history, especially, you know, the Marvel DC, like Golden Ages, like ran through uh ec comics and they would do yeah like uh little horror shorts a little a little uh crime short and like the you get a collect you get like a book and you get like a collection of them like you get like a mix and sometimes it'd be like you know essentially a veiled riff on the maltese falcon and then um a weird riff about um people that stole from the egyptian tombs getting cursed right um but it's what's interesting about it is that though it was financially successful for for a good time um it they received it is a victim of the 1950s uh homogenization of american culture and the 1950s like pushback against counterculture um because it was re- it, re- it received censorship um, pushback. Um, and most of the stories, the violence would be on left in your head or, you know, the zombie would step into the room with the guy and then the story would end. So you could, you could, you know, assume that this gross mutating zombie would eat this guy, but it wouldn't be, you know, entrails and grossness like you can see in the Creepshow movies, Tales from the Dark Side, um, the Creepshow show on Shudder now. Um, it would be, it would be more implied, but, um, the magazine, like especially the issues I've read, are full of like pro, pro sort of progressive messages about like like one of them was really about like environmental themes and about like how if we don't treat the earth well, the earth will treat us very poorly. Yeah. Um, almost all of them are anti-war. Do you mean like, communist? Oh yeah, <laughs> environmentalism, nuclear disarmament. Like we yeah. shouldn't nuke each other. That seems pretty bad. red there, Peter. <laughs> 
maybe the comics code had something uh, right. But you're you're getting to it, right? Like the, the, even when they were selling well, they you're saying were people under- shouldn't be allowed to make money, Peter. Is that what you're trying to say? Is it a crime to make money? To have an innovative idea? I'm just saying if you're going to make money, you should make money talking about environmentalism, and then on the backside, take all of your invest your your profits and then turn it into a uh, a fracking fund. Peter, is it a crime to pay your workers barely a minimum wage uh, so that I can buy more boats? Is that a crime, Peter? Is that what you're saying, that America's filled with criminals? Did you say barely minimum wage? I mean, you know, what a, a minimum. It's a minimum wage. <laughs> yeah, that's not a crime. No, you said barely, right? So it's yeah. over the line. Yeah. Yeah. It's you. You hit. The I'm just saying, wage. like, if, if there's like EC comics that are trying to present ideas that are counter to that, it seems un-American. To me. <laughs> um, yeah, that's. I mean, that's one of the reasons I'm very glad EC Comics went under is because um, they uh, spoke to an anti-American idea that maybe people are people and deserve basic human dignity. Um, they also had issues about like racial ra- racial equality. Obviously, you know, for 1940s, 1950s standards, like. That some sometimes they still use fairly outdated language, but like yeah. they're about hey, maybe we shouldn't beat people to death with with billy sticks. I don't know, um, but like anti anti war uh, anti war sentiments in a lot of the sci fi ones, especially anti nuclear war sentiments in a lot of the sci fi ones in particular. Um, and uh, yeah, like they 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 were fairly ahead of their to- their time in some aspect, and then. Um, Kind of what ended up happening was the magazine that you could laugh at, well, theoretically could laugh at, uh, Mad Magazine um, took over. And then eventually all that was left was was Mad Magazine because uh, that was the one that was under the least amount of pressure and was selling the best yeah. combination of factors, um, both capitalism and also just, um, you know, creeping fascism. Then, yeah, then they could say stuff like, what if we paid our workers a living wage, yuck, yuck. And then you go, oh, that Alfred E. Newman, what an idiot. Yeah. yeah. Um, his head is, is rather large, um, but it's full of nothing. It's blimp size in this issue. <laughs> Honey, you remember blimps? He's finally sending up the Hindenburg crash. Yeah. Oh, my God. I'm sure they have a great issue on the Hindenburg. <laughs> Are you kidding me? Probably, probably his, like... Um, um, it's probably like his head is the blimp and it's like crashing and it's burning and the announcer's like, oh, the humanity should have slept in today. Wah, wah. Yeah. It, it, yeah. He would say. Wah, wah. Yeah. Well, there's a button you can press in the magazine that makes the noise after. <laughs> oh, like when uh, my my uh, my children's wah, wah. books growing up, there was a little button on the side that I can make ducks quack. Yeah. Same thing. The problem is like you had to only get it on the first magazine. Then they used it for each one. <laughs> they don't have money to like reprint the button for every magazine, but they assume they only want people that were with them since the beginning. I mean, well, there's only really seven emotions. There's wah, wah. Wah, wah. number one. Wah, wah. There's um, there's uh, just the sound of a knee slapping. Yeah. Yeah. Um, there is the sound of there's a woo? car. A car. Oh, yeah. There's woo. There's a car horn going. Meh, meh. Well, I was trying to do a Tim Allen grunt. Ooh. <laughs> oh. Ooh. Oh. Yeah, that's that's three out of seven emotions. Yeah. Um, because you do it car- for three different things. You do it for tools, 
mm-hmm. for uh, women, mm-hmm. uh, and then for showing your women your tools. <laughs> <laughs> and then um, I think the fifth sound would be um, a 1950s father um, with uh, seven children in the car, no seatbelts. Huh? Um, Yelling at his children because he lost all their money at the racetrack. It's a seven-minute clip. He lost all their money? <laughs> yeah, he lost all their money that they got at the cigarette factory. Yeah. I don't I don't lend you kids out to the cigarette factory every day just so I can lose your money on the horses. Give I want a return on investments. Yeah, so you've heard it. You've heard the clip before. Oh, yeah. It's, it goes on and on. It talks also about, like, I barely pay you a minimum wage. <laughs> <laughs> what is and the kids if you want child labor laws, go back to Soviet Russia. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and then the last one is the Pledge of Allegiance. Yeah. I know there's one more. I just was hoping people weren't counting. I mean, there's there's seven like uh, you know seven it, for noises seven and any specific number is like just a suggestion. Mm-hmm. Like you can have more noises. Yeah, yeah. What about a fart? Oh, that's that means great meal. Yeah, it's uh from a whoopee cushion though, so people know it's not obscene. That means you spent two dollars. <laughs> um, yeah, so. Quickly. So that's that's kind of the EC Comics uh, Mad Magazine roots. Uh, it is a uh, definitely worth reading some of them. It is mostly worth reading them because it's just fascinating to see how stories were written in yeah. that era. And it is like it's so fat. It's it's like we it's sort of like how people are like, oh, man, kids these days don't have an attention span. And then you watch like a Marx Brothers movie and you're like, there are there were eight jokes in the time it took me to say this sentence right now. Yeah. Like <laughs> there's eight jokes and no editor. Yeah. <laughs> like, what is that? Is that a wall? See? Can't like, fall down on that. Oh, sometimes that things were fast paced back then, too. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> like, it was not, it's not all, uh, it was not all people, uh, reading, uh, Pride and Prejudice. Yeah. Prejudice most of the complaints for... about attention spans are like, my kid rolls three cigarettes and then gets bored. <laughs> when I was your age, I worked at a cigarette factory for 14 hours a day. Mm-hmm. I loved it. And frankly, the kids, the, the kids just not that good at it. Yeah, I mean, you got to roll it tight, but not that tight. <laughs> not that tight. Uh, the other, uh, besides EC Comics, I think the whole like inspiration for horror anthology movies is that this was actually a very natural fit for horror, right? Like one of the as horror became or mainstream horror, modern horror um, started to get a lot of. Um, both in like penny mags and other things uh with with uh Edgar Allan Poe and H.P. Lovecraft and all the different horror writers from the uh, 1800s and and uh and 1900s uh a lot of times they were in short story format and many different you know uh penny paperbacks would compile those into a book they'd pay their authors like shit and that's how you would start to get published it was there's a reason why like edgar Allan poe and hp lovecraft uh as the most well-known examples i mean they don't have that many novels they have mostly a collection of short stories because that was a very common common way for those to be published and it's it while while that was true i mean they had you know they had sci-fi stuff they had uh dramas that worked like that as well i do think you can make a case that like there's there's two formats that work really well in short format, and they're both very similar, as we've talked about before. Um, you know, horror, short uh, horror works really well in short format because it's set up and scare. 
That's essentially the format. You can make it bigger, you can make it longer, you can add more layers into it, but it also works if it's an eight-page story because as long as you have a compelling setup and a surprise or a shock or a scare, it works well. Uh, comedy is the other genre that that works well. It's why I think even to this day, you know, you don't see that many anthology drama shows where you have to get to know the characters and be invested or even science fiction where at some point you need to do some world building to get yourself into a world that's different than yours. Um, but you do, I mean, in, in the same way, comedy works well as short stories or, or quick things. It also works well today in, you know, sketch comedy and Saturday Night Live or Kids in the Hall or whatever else, because, you know, in some ways we've horror and comedy are very similar in horror in horror. It's set up and scare or spook to be month appropriate. And in, in uh, comedy, it's set up and punchline. And we're going to, you know, set the stakes at the table. And if you, they scare you, it's a horror movie. And if they, if they make you laugh afterwards, it's a comedy. And so that is why, like, you know, there's there, when you talk about anthology movies, the only, the only anthology movies that have really, I think survived to a greater degree is again, the, comedy movie we remember some great ones like movie 43 or or some of those other uh, but i mean they, they do exist and then horror movies which you know continue to be both as they talked about on tales of the uncanny uh, a calling card for directors in the same way those penny paperbacks were for horror authors at the time mm -hmm. um and also the ability to kind of work within complete freedom like you're not going to get a lot of budget you're not going to make a lot of money no one who works on it but you're going to be able to you know, we're going to give you $100,000 and you can do whatever you want with it for those 10 minutes. And that's a very compelling offering for and a lot of You don't have to directors. spend years pitching the thing. Like the producer is yeah. like, here, here's your money. Here's the rough, the rough guidelines of what you got to do. And here's two weeks. And he's, and, and all these directors in the, in the, in the, the, um, in the segment, they talk about, they're like, oh, I love working on them. You don't make money on them. But like one of them says, I have so many, I think it's the guy, I think it's, um, one of the guys from ABC's of death. He's like, you just have so many ideas in your head when you're a director. There's so many concepts or stories you want to do. And sometimes you have a, you have something that's kind of. It's kind of perfect for an anthology horror movie. It's not really good for a feature film. And someone will pop up now and say, like, hey, do you do you want to come out to you know Spain for two weeks and shoot this? Or you want to come to Mexico for two weeks and shoot this? And you're like, yeah, I've got I've actually got a perfect story idea that I've been wanting to do for a while. I can never quite crack how to turn it into a, like a three act movie. But like, hey, two, like. 12 minutes, 15 minutes. Absolutely. Right. Yeah. Um, but I, I love, I love them. I actually like, I think people also understand the benefits of be just because of the way we consume media, especially now it's like people understand the benefits of like getting in there, having a cool concept and then having that concept subverted in some way, which yeah, I mean, like that counts for comedy or for horror. And then like, if you don't like the concept and you don't like the way they're subverting it, guess what, dude, just hang on for like 10 minutes and you're going to be out of there. Like, yeah. I mean, people appreciate that. Of course. Like, I mean, all like kids today, generation Z, I mean, there's no more popular app today that does exactly that than something like Quibi, you know, five minutes, get in, you're at the you're at the dentist office. You're waiting. You don't have time for a full show, but you have your phone with you. You know it's bite. It's quick bites, Quibi, and you get quick bites. And kids love it. They'll watch their five minute clips, 
Um, you know, some people like, I know there's like a, you can go a little shorter, like a TikTok or something like that. But mm-hmm. I mean, that's, I mean, that's small potatoes compared to where Quibi's at today. Yeah. TikTok is sort of like an indie misunderstood version of yeah. Quibi. Oh, so 10 seconds. Like, yeah, you can't, I mean, five minutes, you need a bare minimum to set up, uh, uh, you know, a punchline to do a series, a Reno 911 series, for example. Yeah. You can't do a Reno 911 series in, in 60 seconds. You need at least five minutes. Yeah. And, and, and like, open up any kid's iPad on that little home bar. Mm-hmm. You know what you're going to see? Quibby five Quick times. bites. I call it quick they bites. They don't want other shortcuts on there. No, it's just uh, – I don't know how my nephew did it, but like on his uh, on his iPhone, there's not even like – you know how you normally see like apps that are like square tiles and they align mm-hmm. it? He has one big square. There's not even a phone button. It's just Quibi mm-hmm. taking over. It might be a small bite, but it's a big app. <laughs> I forgot you did marketing for Quibi. <laughs> I mean, I, I, clearly I should have. <laughs> 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 Quick bite, full app. <laughs> you ever think about how you could probably download the entire Quibi library, like on your phone? <laughs> well, you can't anymore. It wasn't very much of it. Yeah, it was like uh, seven movies. Or I, am, I am excited. I am excited to watch the full unquibified version of the most dangerous game. It's kind of cool that they made a fan edit. <laughs> yeah, and then they released it with Casper Van Dien. Um, a guy yeah. who is good. Um, all right. Well, I think but, Peter. But, yeah. I, 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 but yeah, I think like just to kind of put a little not, notch on there, like what one thing that I really notch. do love about I, one thing I I do really love about short about these short horror stories is that it can all be leading up to a dumbass joke, like a dumbass punchline. But the fact that they like took the time and devoted the time and like at least sort of built out characters for you makes you respect the hustle, right? Like, so most of these, like, unless the punchline is super, like, mean-spirited or racist or something, um, usually by the time you get to the end, you're like, yeah, well, that was kind of stupid, but thank you for, like, just knocking it out in five minutes as opposed to <laughs> taking, like, an hour and a half of my life to get there. Um, so that's one of the reasons I, I uh, particularly love anthology horror movies. And we're going to be talking about all month um, the various various ways that they rule. But yeah, uh, Aaron, do you want to talk about George A. Romero? Yeah. And Creepshow. And Creepshow. That's a do long pause. A yeah, I want both of them. Yeah, like want, a good what, movie. Uh, do you know what A stands for? A good movie. Uh, yeah, I was going to say scary good time. Yeah, a scary good time. Yeah, uh, yeah. chilling good time. All right. Ooh, did someone open a window? So so chilly just in here. Just let me bite your hand. Just let me bite your hand. I want to bite your hand. And then I bite you. I feel happy. Inside, it's so delicious that my thirst, I can't hide. Peter, we're not going to do a recap because, I mean, that's the fucking movie. So we're just going to go through. Yeah. We're yeah, talking yeah, about yeah. Let's really quickly, it. let's talk. We kind of mentioned it. So, yeah, this was, um, besides the tribute to EC Comics, this was uh, George Romero and Stephen King's creation. Stephen King wrote all the stories. One of them was based on one of his short stories. Uh, Creepshow 2 would, I think, feature all. He didn't write them, but they fe- were the connection there is that all were his uh, 
all were based on his short stories. Mm-hmm. Uh, but this was mostly original work, but done by Stephen King, paired with George A. Romero. Uh, coming off of, I think this was, was this right after Day of the Dead or right before? Uh, before. Okay. So, yeah, he's, I mean, the height of George A. Romero's powers, even though I love George Romero to death. I mean, the height is probably hyperbole on every level. But this, I mean, this is, you know, we're, we're only a few years away. We're not even 10 years away from Carrie coming out and Stephen King becoming, like, the new, uh, the new horror uh, hip author. He was, he was basically like the Dean Coots of his time, I would say, Peter. <laughs> um, so him pairing up with George Romero, beloved cult figure, Made Night of the Living Dead, Dawn of the Dead at this point, and a couple other movies. Um, uh, yeah, I, I can understand why if you're a horror fan in 1982, this feels huge. And I hopefully it delivered for you. I don't know what your expectations were. In 1982, I wasn't alive yet. Uh, but, uh, but yeah, they wanted to do a riff on EC Comics. They were able to get the rights for uh, EC Comics, uh, but only kind of because when they tried to make a famously when they tried to make a TV version of this, uh, they couldn't get the rights to the title Creep Show and had to call it Tales uh, Tales from the Dark Side. Yeah, yeah, it, it's uh, it's fairly it's fairly messy because by the time that I was getting into horror movies, I had no idea that Tales from the Dark Side, both the movie and the show, was related any, to this. Yeah. Any relation to Creepshow. Yeah. Um, because I, I also don't think Wikipedia was in that sort of state back then where you could, like, really dig in on nerd stuff. You kind of had to hear it from a friend. Yeah. Um, but, but um, yeah, I, I didn't know that. And then I saw Tales from the Dark Side because I was like, well, I love a Creepshow 3 and it's way better than Creepshow 2. And yeah, Tales from the Dark Side is really good. I it's like really it. good. We we we, we uh, covered we, we covered the final the gargoyle one. Yes, yes, we covered the gargoyle one as uh, one of our best anthology episodes. Yeah, um, I do. Maybe I'm misremembering, but I do feel like the opening because I, I actually kind of it's been a while since I've seen Creepshow and I forgot the order of it. Mm-hmm. Um, I thought the crate was first, but I think there's something very similar to the crate, which is the first entry in Tales from the Dark Side. Maybe. Or maybe I have it completely wrong. There's a point that someone makes in Tales from the Uncanny that people don't necessarily remember the order of the episodes or every single single segment. You remember the ones that stick in your mind the most. And in Tales from the Dark Side, um, the one that was essentially a remake of a a Japanese folklore story about the gargoyle – that that was the one that that I remembered. So yeah, not I mean not like major. I just remembered the crate first, and then um, basically take take the crate, move it to one, and then everything else in that same order. I don't know why I remembered it in that order. Maybe just because the crate's kind of the longest. It's the, I think kind of the centerpiece of the movie. Um, even though it's not, it's the one. It's the one that I think maybe people remember the best. But the thing about Creepshow is, I think I think everyone remembers everything one. the best. I mean, I, yeah. I think the only I, one that you can make a case. That probably people don't remember that well is the Father's Day one. Yeah, which I would say is the weakest segment. Because it's just them. a joke. It's, it's Which is it's fine. Also, it's also, here's my argument for being the weakest. Well, one, it has no elements of it that are scary to me. All the other ones have elements that make me feel at least a sense of dread. Yeah. There's nothing in Father's Day that's scary to me. Um, yeah, good. I mean, really good. One thing that – so Tom Savini – did um did the the spe- the practical effects and one thing that's different Tom Savini obviously did a lot of horror effects from our from our from the seventies eighties and nineties but one thing that um I watched a little bit of the um 
uh, behind the scenes, or maybe this from Tales from the Uncanny. I watched a, a few things, and now they're all mixing in my head. But uh, he talks about like he was trying to do something different, and that he wanted to still do kind of gross, disgusting horror, but he wanted to look more like a comic book as opposed to like his other zombies. So the thing that I love most about Father's Day is like the father who rises from the grave. Like it looks like Tom Savini doing Dawn of the Dead through the prism of a comic book. Like it's great. Yeah, let's talk about the wraparound segment really quickly. Yeah, and then we get establishes it establishes like that vibe immediately because the wraparound segment has actual animated sections. Yep. So it's about it's about a young boy played by Joe Hill, Stephen King's son, um, which is pretty weird. Um, Joe Hill's horror bona fides are you know he's he's earned them. Yeah, Um, he he'd later go on to be terrified of his dad for a while. Um, uh, yes, yes. Um, <laughs> and, dis- and disagree vociferously about which version of The Shining is better. <laughs> yes, yes. Uh, I think they now have a more functional relationship. Yeah, there's other things you may know them for, but those are the two that I like to think about the most. Yeah. Um, uh, but Joe Hill, an amazing horror author. Yeah. I love just about everything he's done. Um Heart Shaped Box is like one of the best, I think, uh, scariest ghost stories I've ever written, ever read. Fireman is a really fun riff on his dad's work from The Stand. Um, lo- lo- love uh, love Joe Hill's work. Um, he is the little boy in this, which is also, you know, that really stocks up his bona fides, even though he's, he's you know, poor royalty in the genetic sense. Yeah. Um, him and Tom. That's, that's te- I mean, technically that is what royalty means, Peter. That, I mean that in the sense to like, you know, usually when you talk about someone being royalty in the... People aren't usually like a king metaphorically. I mean, I guess like, they are on like Twitter. Like, you know, I guess, I guess is a bad example, but like people talk about like Beyonce being royalty, but like that's something that people have assigned to them, which makes them not royalty. Yeah. He's literally, he's literally royalty. Where everyone has agreed yeah. that Beyonce is royalty. Yeah, he's literally he's, horror royalty. Yeah. Um, I would say a lot, uh, Beyonce is closer to an elected official because everybody agrees. Yeah, they vote. <laughs> we, we, we vote with our Twitter alerts and our um, That's uh, capitalism, baby. Yeah, uh, but Tom Atkins, great comics. as a scuzzball dad. Oh, great. Um, this is like, I mean, noted 80s uh, sex icon, Tom Atkins. It is amazing how many movies he gets to be horny in, despite how he, off-putting his sexuality is. Oh, yeah. I mean, now, I mean we've covered Day of the Creeps. Uh, we haven't covered Halloween, Halloween 3, 3. But yeah, I mean, he is like, uh, the ladies love Tom Atkins. Um, and uh, what's the one he bangs? Uh, he bangs Jamie Lee Curtis when she looks so much younger than him. Oh, she's is, not. Is she in the fog? The fog. The fog yes. Yeah. yeah. I mean, yeah. I, I know. I. It's nice that he did this movie because, like, he was he was basically the Michael Douglas of the horror. He's like just just. It's like I guess I can pause from like eating pussy in my movies for one second to play this kid's dad. <laughs> so he's he yeah, Michael he's, Douglas uh, wouldn't have done that. He would have been like, yeah, too busy eating pussy. Too tied up, you know. Yeah, I'll be a dad, uh, but that dad's eating pussy. Yeah, he couldn't hear uh, the calls of his agent because he had thighs on either side of his ears. Yeah. Um, so Tom, Tom Atkins took picked up the phone. Yeah, I get it. <laughs> yeah. Um, Tommy Atkins picked up the phone and he is uh, slapping his kid around for reading that, that horror junk. Yeah. Um, and it's very, very this much better funny. not have environmentalist propaganda. <laughs> <laughs> That's the other thing. I don't think any creep show segment. I've watched every episode of the TV show. 
Um, I've watched Creepshow 1 and 2. I've watched Tales from the Dark Side. I don't know if any of them have environmentalism or any sort of socially progressive messages. Uh, uh, what are you talking about? What about the, uh, I mean, indigenous person segment from Creepshow 2? Uh, old, old Woodenhead? Yeah. Probably, and it's also the one that's like 45 fucking minutes. Know, so so you can't even, you can't even need do that thing where you're like, you know, this is problematic, but if it's like 15 minutes long and I get to see a cool, like, uh, wooden prop, like, you know, whatever, faux wooden prop, like tomahawking people like yeah it's problematic it's racist but like i can go on to the next segment and like in like 10 minutes i because it was a full movie i would turn it off but it's so long yeah it's like 45 minutes you do get to the raft though uh you do get to the raft yes um crucial crucially important um but yeah so he's slapping his kid around for reading horror comics and the kid starts to like stew in his hatred for his dad and outside the window is a character um this this vault dweller character that is uh essentially he's essentially one-to-one with a ec comics figure except for this one doesn't talk the weird thing is the tales from the crypt tv show is maybe closest to what the original comic book version is but he, it's too far into the vaudeville territory to be accurate because the original one doesn't crack jokes on that level yeah. it has like it'll have like one joke a, a comic yeah um so it's kind of funny how we have like this version most the of the horror and tales comics. from the crypt versions and we have the creep show tv show version yeah. um all kind of different different takes this one mostly just hangs out windows yeah he's kind of like sends like some vibes like kill your dad yeah yeah, yeah. he's sending dark energy but he's yeah. not wisecracking he's not doing any of that stuff yeah. and then we cue this kind of cool anim- 80s animated sequence to to let you really know that this is like not necessarily for kids but it's supposed to conjure in you a childlike sense of horror this well and, and, and like that the you're... world is bigger and scarier than than you think and that whether whether you're at ec comics i do think a lot of people have the same experience of feeling like you have some sort of like horror taboo book that you need yes. to keep secret and like that's that's definitely the vibe it's conjuring by all the different throughout the stories like they don't go too hard on like framing things like comic books or having you know titles on screen but they do it enough to remind you that this is a this is a like taboo comic book come to life that this kid was was reading and these were the stories and they like a lot of twilight zone like a lot of uh you know ec comics uh i presume and other things too this is like all the all the all of the stuff in here is general moralizing. Like, you know, there's a lesson. Like, you, someone does something, steps on a line, <coughs> excuse me, does something wrong, and they're, they're treated to just, uh, just desserts, which is going to be somewhat similar to what the we The word just is, is a little. Well, just with an asterisk. I mean, just in a horror movie. That's kind of where, you know, the next few movies we're going to cover. It's not the case for VHS. It's not the case for a lot of anthology horror movies, but Tales from the Hood and the 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 uh, Tales from the Crypt and Vault of Horror movies, they still, they lean on that kind of classic formula of horror. Someone steps out of line and has some sort of justice, uh, even horrific justice or unfair justice in, like foisted upon them. They, uh, they're, they're in some ways like morality tales where the morality is is questionable. I mean, I had that. I had. I didn't have a uh, uh, EC Comics, but like I, 
I, I didn't hide porn under my bed in elementary school, mainly because I don't know how I would have gotten access to it. But I, I, I did buy Goosebumps and Scary Stories to Tell in the Dark and like other random like true horrific stories fiction. I loved them and I hid them all under my bed. <clears throat> and then at one point got so so paranoid that what if my parents find all this stuff? I like, like put them all in a trash bag and like threw it in a dumpster in the alleyway because I'm like I can't can't handle the guilt of having all this this uh, taboo material uh, like say cheese and die. But I, I think that's a common experience for a lot of kids. Like you you knew that having these these stories you you weren't quite old enough for them. Or uh, I mean I, I was probably old enough for Goosebumps, but I felt like I was you know reading something I wasn't supposed to. Yeah, yeah. I, I I had some of this um as a kid. I couldn't totally relate to it though, because like Yeah, I, your parents didn't care about you. That's what my parents they, I was I was the youngest. Uh so I had like occasionally had things like this, but like that was really like below the age of twelve. Like once I got to like twelve, thirteen, my parents kind of just gave up on that. Um but yeah, I couldn't totally relate to this, but I, I I could relate to the idea of a little kid getting slapped around and wanting to kill his dad. Because um, I, I didn't get slapped around, but like I could relate to this little kid wanting to yeah. get his dad yeah. murdered. You can relate to wanting to kill Tom, Tom Atkins. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, me, me and Gary Busey yeah. are the two people that can relate to that. Yeah. Um, but uh, he, he gets shot with the weapon. Um, yeah, I know. That wasn't that was that was pretty we, we covered it. Sure. Uh, so yeah, so we can get what, into what happens to Father's Day. Let's get into Father's Day. Yeah, so Father's Day is uh, besides featuring an uh, Ed Harris with Harris. Huh? Um, with, I think it would be Ed Harris with hair question mark. Yeah, uh, I was trying to do a pun on his name. It didn't work. Uh, Ed Harris has nothing to do in this movie. He's not really famous yet, but it's fun to see. Um, he, I would I'd call him baby faced. Harris, but I—that's not true. He, he look—he looks like he always looks. Uh, He's very, very new to to the screen in this. Uh, he had done Night Riders with George Romero. Oh yeah. Um, but like, on like Ed Harris is not a, a household no. name by any stretch. No. By the time of he's not guy. like Pollock yet. Yeah, yeah, he's not Literally. Pollock yet. He's not Pollock level famous. Uh, you know when people Pollock. like, well, you know, like you're, you're, you know, it's like a rainy weekend and you have to go to your grandma's house as a kid and they're like, I've got two VHS tapes, Forrest Gump and Pollock. <laughs> you're like, and you always are like, put on Pollock, baby. You're like, I guess Pollock. Oh my God. I'd love to, I'd love to see Ed Harris just fucking yell at some drip drop paintings. <laughs> <laughs> drip better. It's not the drip I was looking for. <laughs> um, yeah. Great movie. Could you say Jackson Pollock had drip? Oh Yeah. Drip, yeah. I'm sorry for dripping. That's what he used to sing to himself all the time. Do you think that um, when he fought with if, his wife, if Eugene Levy play, might have been played Levy. by Holly Hunter in that movie? I forget. From that. Like, I'm sorry for dripping. No, no. If Eugene Levy yeah. played Jackson oh Pollock, God, I already would know you, do you think this he would say, line. "I'm straight dripping, boo"? <laughs> <laughs> like the longest walk for the best joke of all time. I think it was worth it. <laughs> Thank you. Um, so, yeah. So, Father's Day is basically like, again, classic morality tale. I One thing creep show that we'll hit on relatively quickly, these stories aren't the most detailed, but they, in some ways they're all serving as like a template for that type of moralizing, I think. Like, this is the classic, like, uh, you know, someone ab- was abused by a father. Figure that they, the, the, they killed their father and they're living with the guilt. And I think... Peter, why you said just desserts, that one of the things about 
about kind of that horror what makes something like a horror movie as opposed to like a twilight zone or something like that is that it, it's it's almost like old testament justice like i think you can make a justifiable reason that the person who is horrifically abused by their father killing them to escape that abuse uh, is 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 actually an ethical act or something that's not worth some sort of like cosmic punishment, but that's not how it works in a horror movie or like the Old Testament, right? Like they were. The I would fa- agree with you a hundred percent on Father's Day, but I don't think the following two, the next two segments, maybe three, <laughs> the next two segments, maybe three, do not have Old Testament. They actually have a more modern. A, a, a version of justice yeah. or a version of, of cosmic like yeah i'm Jordan i'm I'm, I'm, not, I, I'm not making it broader than i really am like that this yeah, story yeah, specifically okay. is we'll like get to Jordy Verrill, yeah that's, it's, it's that's essentially nihil that's like lovecraftian nihilism yeah someone still stepped out of line and they 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 get some sort of cosmic justice regard like ethics don't even come into consideration they you killed someone you're not supposed to kill someone you're supposed to honor your mother and father uh in you know in, in that type of horror morality play like it, it doesn't matter you, there's no justifiable homicide or whatever there's no justifiable crime and so they're at this party that seems like a rager they have one song <laughs> listen to for yeah some hours. shitty disco song uh I, I i know i'm sure it's something of like they only wanted to pay for the rights for one song but it is funny that they just over the course of a night that lady just dances to the song all night i don't know have you ever listened to like a donna summer song they're like 14 minutes i mean they maybe. don't they don't have maybe it's one no song. like it, it becomes day to night <laughs> also there's no repeat right so like one of two things are happening I assume they're either going and restarting the record or like turning over the cassette and rewinding it each time. Yeah, it's it's a single twelve inch. Yeah, that they're just flipping yeah. over and over and over. They're playing the they're playing the um, extended disco mix, and then the, um, the disco and mix. then they're playing the basic disco mix. <coughs> one is eight minutes long, and one is uh, nine minutes long. Uh, yeah, but uh, basically, it's that they're having a dinner party. This lady who had killed you find out through flashbacks her dad, her abusive father, always demanded a cake. It's the anniversary of his death. She goes and visits his grave. Uh, and is like, you son of a, you know, whatever, uh, yells at him. There's my cake. Me- yeah, you immediately, you bitch. He immediately rises from the grave. <laughs> like, <laughs> like um, there's like, it's two minutes in. He's like, you see a little flashback. What happens? She visits the grave, immediately rises from the grave. And then it's kind of like these people all get brutally murdered that are at this party. Uh, and then the kind of punch – I mean, it's, it, there's not much more than that. Like, the special effects are good. The punchline at the end is that at the end, uh, it's her head with candles on it, and he emerges from the – the zombie dad emerges from the kitchen saying, like, here's the birthday cake. And everyone, you know, gasps, and it freezes on a, on a comic drawing of of that for a happy Father's Day. Your good recap, because um, he tech and you also hit on exactly what I was going to say, like the Old Testament justice. Like he technically has a grievance with her because yeah. you're not supposed to murder somebody. However, I think anybody watching this would would say that it's a you know it's a justifiable or at least you know borderline justifiable uh, piece of action because he it wasn't just that he was abusive; he murdered her, um, love her because he didn't agree with her. And I think that that plot point, I've never really, like, caught. Every time I watch this movie, I forget it. And I've seen this movie maybe a dozen times in my life. 
means that okay so i would argue this is the weakest segment um it's a good introduction because it's just sort of getting you open to the vibe yeah, good, good special you. effects has a, has a punchline it's not throwing you into the grossness of the last segment. It's not throwing you into the nihilism of Jordy Verrill. Like, it's not throwing you into the, the, the mean stuff yet. This is just like you watching a bunch of rich people getting eaten. Yeah. Um, which is, it's, and then you see a zombie. And you're like, it's sort of a, it's an appetizer for what's going to happen. But there's, weirdly enough, like, it's too much plot for a short segment. Like... I forget every time that the dad even murdered her, like, lover. Like, there's just, like, way, like, oh, two yeah. or three too many plot points. And there's, like, two or three too many characters for it to be, like, satisfying. And unfortunately, like, none not of them two get, or like, too scary deaths. No, just there's the exactly song. the right amount just, of songs, yeah, which one is one. Song. So, um, any other thoughts on No, I mean, you know, it's it's something that... It, it, it works perfectly in, in Creep Show because... The thing is, when it's different directors who get one shot and they have a little bit of a vision of, like, what they're doing, I feel like when you have a weak segment, that's the end of it, right? And I'm not – like, Father's Day is weak. It's a, it's a fine preamble to all the other stuff that's going to come. But it performs a service. But if you, like, were watching, uh, like, a VHS and, and then you're like, oh, the Ty West segment is coming up and it was Father's Day, you'd be like, oh, okay. Like you move on to the next one because it that that is one of the the I think the weaknesses of those types of anthology. You're you're either like seeing a director you don't know anything about and wondering what they're going to do with their ten minutes or fifteen minutes of material, or you're watching a director you love and you want to see what they're going to contribute to it. And so almost everyone can't set a mood, it can't set a tone, it has to do its own thing well. Or else you could skip over it. Creepshow works really well as a, as a complete movie, and this is a really good example. This only needs to set the stage for what Creepshow is going to do, which is introduce something with some sort of morality act, show some uh, gross special effects, and kind of have a comeuppance at the end. And, like, that's what you're going to be getting out of these stories. And they get longer, they get more complex, they get more creepy, they get more relatable, they get more weird. But, like... This is a perfect table setting story without really getting as interesting of what's left. And it works in Creep Show where I think it would be like a, the thing you fast forward in VHS. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, though I um I one thing I wish I'd written down for Creep Show, I kind of goofed. I wish I'd written down um all the what's the term for it? Like the splash pages. Anytime that they have a cartoon uh, background in juxtaposition with someone's like shocked face. Oh yeah, and something that's it's supposed to emulate those amazing panels in in horror comics. I wish I'd written down every one, but in this they, one they do it almost at the end of every every one. Yes, yeah. yes, and they do it in the Creep Show TV show on Shutter, which I'm I'm quite a quite a fan of. Yeah. Um, so let's get to uh, one of the more famous ones from this, which the is Lonesome Death of Jordy Vera. Yeah, which is kind of which is the color out of space, right? I think people don't talk about it that much that it is just a straight up like color out of space adaptation. It doesn't have the exterior like, you know, the gang coming to hunt down all the monsters. It doesn't have the family. Yeah. But it is about a meteor comes to the, comes to Earth. Um, a like a redneck played by Stephen King, yeah. which, by the way, a lot of people make fun of Stephen King's performance in this. But like George Romero was like, I want you to play this as as <laughs> as broad as a highway. Yeah, like, I want you. Well, I mean, yeah, he, yeah, he didn't want to be in it. It was George. Yeah, George Romero who was like, 
it'll be funny if you do this. Like, it works. It's also, I think time has been really good to this segment. Because it's so fun to see the master of horror be a goofball redneck. Yeah. And he's he's not not doing Southern Redneck. And not be terrifying Joe Hill. And he's not doing Southern Redneck. He's doing, like, Manor Redneck. Yeah, he's he's doing doing universal Southern accent Redneck, which is not a real Southern accent. Yeah, yeah. But he, uh, since he didn't actually write the segment, George Romero did, uh, wrote the, the dialogue. Um, he didn't get to do that weird thing that Stephen King does where you're like. Described a dick uncomfortably. You're like, you're like, is pole swat a word that Mainers say? <laughs> or is that just like your mom said this once 20 years ago and you misheard her? Yeah, the two things that, uh, that stephen king should not be allowed to do is introduce any slang that he heard growing up and describe anyone getting aroused (laughs) no boners no puns no boners no puns actually no words with p and n in it (laughs) i still think of that we talked about when we did the missed episode but like i every once in a while i cringe and like uh, I didn't know I could get this erect as like a legitimate like horny thing. It was like, oh. uh, yeah, it got a pretty big boner. Yeah. Anyways, there was a it's monster about to the Toby scenes. the busboy. Yeah. <laughs> uh, um, but yeah, so, so yeah, so so he's let me let me run yeah, through the run plot through. real quick. Um, jo- Jordy Verrill is a uh, sort of he's a he's like a common country bumpkin is the, is the archetype they're playing with. He uh, a meteor lands in his backyard. He immediately sees it and he goes. I have to pay off a bank loan, like, of $200. Um, and he immediately imagines that he could go to the local university, Colorado Space, um, and bring it into – I think it's – I think you, I think the name on the door is Meteor Department. It is. It's Meteor Department. <laughs> Look, that's what they have at highfalutin colleges. Very highfalutin <laughs> he, colleges, a whole Meteor Department. And he goes in and in almost sort of like a Christmas story, you know, Ralphie, Ralphie imagining like daydreaming about the Red Rider BB gun. Um, he like imagines like in like soft focus, like the guy, the the professor's like, I'll give you a hundred dollars. And he's like, not a penny less than 200. <laughs> like he's, 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 he's big time at him to get his $200 to pay off a bank loan. Like that's the, like one of the many things that's, that's good about this segment is that you're sympathetic to Jordy the entire time. Cause he's just like a poor dude who took out a bank loan, presumably to pay off his fucking house. Like, yeah. Um, and he, uh, and then he I, touches, I, I... I do think this does have a little bit of that Old Testament moralizing, like, now that I think about it. Because it this is very much like – if you're thinking of, like, templates, this is the be careful what you wish for segment, right? Like, something that initially seems like a gift from the heavens, literally, that's going Being to – Being solvent? Yeah. That, well, yeah, I know. But, I mean, that's <laughs> – but, again, that's the – there's nothing – Old Testament justice is like um, – is that idea of like there's actually nothing wrong with him going it would be great if i wasn't under the the thing of the, of the banks but he gets punished for like coveting the idea of money even though the money in his case is just like you said to be solvent and to get out of debt like even just that idea of i'm going to be rich and i'm going to take this and i'm going to use it is like is like a classic be careful what you wish for or like again i agree it's done in a way that's very unfair to 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 Jordy, he isn't looking to become the most famous person in the world. And even that would be like, it's okay if you find something from space and try to make money off it. There's nothing like really unethical about it. But the act of wanting money from someone who doesn't have it is like a very common, like, again, Old Testament sort of how dare you covet wealth. 
Yeah, yeah. Uh, I I get that. It's just it's it's one of those things that like any sort of modern any sort of modern reader would even in the eighties would be like this is like nihilism because you take this goofball character that I I don't know I find myself empathizing with Jordy just because yeah. of the idea that he's like in debt and like can't get out of it. Um, and he's a goofball who goof he he goofs up for like just. All of us have done stupid shit. You're trying to like, I don't know, hang hang up painting at a wall and you accidentally tear a big hole in the drywall. Like all of us do stupid shit all the time. Like it's very like these sort of characters are very relatable. He pours water on the meteor, which cracks it open. It spills purple goo everywhere. He touches the goo. His hand starts to mutate. He has another fantasy about going to the doctor's office and... um. Oh, sorry. Another fantasy about going to the meteor department. They offer him like no money for the the meteor now that he's cracked it. And then as his hand starts to mutate, he has a fantasy about going to the doctor's office and them charging him like a boatload of money to chop off his hand. Yeah. Did you notice? And then he, did, and, did and you they, did you notice what he was turning into, Peter? Uh, the Grinch. Uh, uh, uh the Grinch. <laughs> Yeah, this is a this is a Grinch prequel. It's a pre-Grinch. Um, Benedict Cumberbatch wishes. Yeah, it's like if if you didn't go and uh, torture the people of Whoville, what if you shot your fucking head off? <laughs> I mean, he is a loner. Yeah. Um, but he Got all uh, the markings of a good Grinch. We just don't get to see baby <laughs> Stephen King. <laughs> he doesn't have a dog either. Thank no. God. Um. But he uh, he starts to grow like mossy green fingers. This the the, the candy color. I think this is the segment where the candy color palette of the uh, creep show is so crucial. Yeah, because it's not that things are green; it's that they're these sickly neon green. Yeah, like it's unnatural. It's gross. It's supposed to be this color out of space, sort of Lovecrafty thing. Yeah. right. And the ending and is like insanely sad. And yeah, so he's he's you know he's watching uh, some boxing on TV. He accidentally touches his tongue, and then the change starts to happen from within. And what that means is that like he's starting to get itchy. He's starting to drink more because he's like feeling sorry for himself and and hoping to like kill the disease inside him. And um, his last the last lines he says on planet Earth are, "Please God, let my luck be in just this once." That his shotgun is loaded and works, yeah. and then it, it blows off his Grinch head. Yeah, because he can't see. He doesn't have eyes. Yeah. This also, like, speaks to a good body horror. That's why it's super creepy. The idea of, like... I can't imagine watching this segment and being, like, not not sad for Jordy Verrill. That is so yeah, sad. Yeah, it's, it's a lonesome death, right? He's just he's just a he's just a poor schmuck yeah. who touched the wrong thing. Like, Jordy did... Jordy was just, like, a relatable dummy. Yeah, I mean, that's, that's color out of space, too, right? Like, not necessarily a dummy, but the idea that this family is just, like, getting destroyed destroyed from the inside out and it works really well because like they didn't do anything but exist and they exist in a world where uh you know that again the the nihilism component is right like it's you know the whatever was out there that landed on earth didn't it's not even evil in the sense that it didn't care about jordy it didn't know about jordy to care it just existed but it existed in a way that was um not not mergeable with Jordy, right? Like it wasn't it couldn't exist side by side with them. It grew it, it grew out of his cells until he was nothing. It's a you're that's a really good way of putting it. And also that is like I, as someone who's read every Lovecraft story and in the past few years is like 
touched on a few of my ones that I remember being my favorites, even a couple that weren't my favorites because I uh, read Providence and Providence references like <laughs> horror and Red Hook and some of the worst ones um, The uh, with good thematic purpose. Um, but uh, it is Colorado Space is one of the few stories where um, H.P. Lovecraft extends sympathy and empathy to um, people that are poorer than him, people that are like, you know, a- a- actually like working for a living because he saw himself as a as a you know a, an elite member so he very often spit on the poor and spit on the working class people yeah um and especially farmers you know these uncultured people that have no idea of you know uh, the gambled roofs of, of providence um so I, I i think it's it's interesting that the story is ends up being so sympathetic and ends up being so sympathetic because it goes from pure goofball dumbass comedy that some people don't like and i really like um, to deep nihilism, but it's like candy-colored nihilism. Love that. Yeah, uh, agreed. And na- next we get to my favorite segment, uh, something to tide you over. Uh, Maybe mine too. I, I, I think mine too. I love this one. Um, yeah. It, I mean, it works as like the Hitchcockian thriller as a little bit of like a pre-saw, very pre-pre-saw. It has – I mean, obviously it's great to see Leslie Nielsen and Ted Danson before – uh, before Leslie Nielsen had made the full, it's post airplane, but it was before like the only thing you're gonna see Leslie Nielsen in is a joke machine movie. Uh, and Ted Danson, right? I think I think Cheers came started the same year. So, um, but he had been in Body Heat and had some like some accolades for a supporting turn there um, for being a hot dude that's charming. Yeah. Um, and this also, like, I think this has a little bit of both sides of Old Testament moralizing. Like, you know, Ted Danson basically sleeps with Leslie Nielsen's wife. Um, and Leslie Nielsen uh, figures it out and kind of comes in this creepy segment to his house and is asking about, like, VCR stuff. And essentially, he has this plan to knock him out, to drag him to uh, his land. He's a rich guy, which is why his um, – his wife, who's clearly younger, like, you know, had at some point probably married him for the money um, or, like, protection or father figure, whatever, and now had actually fallen in love uh, with 1982 hot guy Ted Danson. Um, and he uh, essentially says, I'm not going to um, – he says, you'll see her again. You just have to come with me. And he buries Ted Danson up to his neck in sand. Uh, and then he has rolled out like this giant extension cord, <laughs> closed circuit system. Like he has a truck and this like huge wire, and he plugs in a TV uh, in front of the sand, uh, and uh, he sees a what ends up being a live feed to Leslie Nielsen's wife, who's also buried headfirst in the sand, noting, "Hey, she's further down the beach," um, and so. I, you know, the tide's going to come in. It's, you know, the waves are coming in. It's, it's going to hit her first. But you can watch her. I, I kept my promise. You're going to see her again. and says, kind of so long. Uh, and then he goes back to – it's a lot creepier than that. He kind of goes into like, see, what she's doing is wrong. Like, you, she's getting too – she's screaming too much when she should be like pacing herself to hold her breath. She's going to tire herself out and eventually she's not going to be able to hold her breath and she's going to start drinking in the salt water. And it's like, again, very like Hitchcockian type like I'm a murderer and I'm here – I'm going to describe very clinically what's going to – what's going to kill you. So he goes back. We're to his house where he has closed circuits of both and kind of watches them drown. But then he doesn't see Ted Danson drown. Uh, the TV, I think, gets destroyed by the water. And 
when he goes out there, it looks like his body's not there. It's gone. And well, the first couple of times I watched this, I always like forget, like, did he escape? Because he, he's like, well, he was dragged out by the tide. I'm sure he's gone. And like, I, I, I know there's a comeuppance, which again, even though Ted Danson did the bad thing and is – I mean, bad thing according to, like, you know, again, old school morality. Um, he's going to get some comeuppance. Well, you can't just kill people either um, in that kind of morality, in this, in this creep show morality. That is also something that you can't do uh, without some sort of comeuppance. So uh, he hears a knock at his door, and in, like, this just fantastically creepy imagery, it is both Ted Danson and Leslie Nielsen's wife who are, uh, like, drowned waterlogged zombies who are there to kill him and kind of stalk him through the house. He shoots them. It doesn't really work. Throws his gun at him and eventually like traps them as, and the, you know, the screen does that thing where it shows the matte painting of the comic book behind him and, you know, cuts away. But it's, it's great on so many levels. Again, the Leslie Nielsen is so good as like this, you know, a evil classic like Bond villain <laughs> explaining his plan, walking through meticulously how he worked it out. Um, the the waterlogged zombies designed by Tom Savini are great. Like the scares are real when there's knocks at the door and they show up with like Romero's like fucking close camera right in the zombie's face as he tries to quickly back away. Like it just works. The the images of the TV on the beach with the black and white feed with them buried their the head of the it's it's fantastic. It's one of my favorite. Yeah, the retro tech is the retro tech is so scary yeah it's one of my favorite like uh, uh anthology segments period also the title great pun Something tied you over yep two um did you notice who the wife was uh is it veronica cartwright it's uh galen ross who is the uh the lead in uh dawn of the dead oh okay that's pretty cool right yeah i mean you only only see her on the i forgot to look it up uh you only see her on the black and white like analog tv and then you know obviously when she comes back she's a she's a she's a a waterlogged unrecognizable zombie figure so yeah i don't even know if that's her and ted danson as the corpses or if they just really nail like certain specific features of their faces but like once you know you can see it yeah i i think you nailed you nailed it pretty quickly what i love about this um the justice i feel like is more ethical than biblical because the the lovers are sort of almost immediately exonerated Ted Danson is like I mean they're killed money, man. She, that's what yes but that is the act of a person not the universe sure okay that's fair um so the 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 more uh it, it's more ethical than biblical because this person is trying to enact old I would say old testament justice on them like you know you you killed you covered my wife yeah yeah, and, and he's not trying to take her. He's a rich guy, but she's not trying not trying to take his money. He's like, she's already agreed to like with me that like we're gonna walk away clean from this. Yeah. Um, a segment that they try, they like this segment so much that in Creep Show Two, there's actually a pretty fun segment involving the guy who's the cheater who is forced to walk on the um, walk on the edge of a building. It's gonna, I think it's just called the ledge. Um, and it's a good segment, and like eventually, like birds are fucking with him and stuff. Um, that one feels more like maybe... Is that from Cat's like, Eye? Or maybe that's from Cat's Eye. You're right, you're right, you're right, you're right. Um, yeah, that's from, I, that's from, again, that's from again. Cat's Eye. Or Cat's Eye. Because uh, there's only three segments in Creepshow 2, and it's the raft, the uh, indigenous head. person uh, one, and then the, the, the one that I actually kind of like somewhat like, which is the lady who keeps hitting the, the homeless drifter. Oh, yeah, that one is actually kind of like existentially creepy because yeah. it is a fear of mine hitting, hitting someone when you're driving at night. We shouldn't be allowed to have cars. Yeah. Um, but um, 
this one is more ethical than biblical because like they they go through like immense suffering in the universe that evening is like no this isn't right this guy's got to go yeah and leslie nielsen is weaponizing his comedy chops well this is i mean you remember this is pre-comedy chops like he i don't know if you ever saw some of his yeah but he's funny as fuck in the segment like he's, he's every good line but... that comes out every line that comes out of him he is he is creep show to me because every line that comes out of his mouth is both scary and funny like he is they're using his comedy chops before i mean it's after airplane it is after before, airplane or, but i mean remember uh, he had like 20 years done. of a serious like career like he was like the lead romantic yeah. man in like forbidden planet so this is like still where he's he hasn't fully crossed over into everything i do is funny but i agree like he he's very good in this role and, and has a sense of like dramatic flair to his like you know uh his plan and I just, I just love like to me his performance is creep show because like every line like is uh, is funny and and scary like comfort point is very private Harry and then Harry starts calling for help and he mocks him he's like help help like it, it's 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 so. It's so good because if you're watching this as a goofball comedy, you're like, oh, my God, Leslie Nielsen is so fucking just naturally fucking funny. If you're watching this as a horror movie, he's terrifying yeah. because his only morality is, is 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 encapsulated in the line. I keep what is mine. Yeah. Yeah. He, uh, he, he doesn't care about his wife. He just he, he doesn't care he, about the he cheating. He cares that she's yeah. trying to leave. Yeah. And um, to, to uh, something I referenced at the beginning of the episode. Uh, every segment, except for the Father's Day, has something that makes me uh, actually scared. Uh, Jordy Verrill, actually, like, at the, by the end of it, I'm, like, I'm feeling Jordy's, like, existential pain where he's just, like, horrifyingly hurt and he just wants to die. In this one, they – I forget every time I watch this movie how much they stay on Ted Danson drowning. Oh, yeah. And they actually did have Ted Danson on some, some sort of complicated, like, table setup yeah. with water coming in. And then they would bring him, I believe, a mask or a scuba a scuba mask or, or something, or, a, or maybe an, an air tank between shots so he could, like, catch his breath for a few minutes and whatever. And then they would do it, do, get more footage. They stay on Ted Danson's face for a long time. And they stay on that footage of Galen Ross dying for a long, a long time. time. Well, yeah, he's just and he's describing everything she's oh. doing wrong. Yeah, it's it's terrifying. Like that idea yeah. of, and, of being buried and un, you cannot escape in the sand. You know, we when we did those uh, spaghetti westerns, right? Like there, there's a few that have the person buried and like die by vultures or like the sun eventually killing you or ants or whatever else. Like we talked about how terrifying that was, and like here it's terrifying for a whole different reason. Like. You have much less time to figure out uh, how you're going to get out. Yeah, drowning is is is, a, is something that still scares yeah. me a lot. No, um, don't do yeah, it. And then Les, Leslie Nielsen has one of one of the I think the best final line in this that's also straight up creep show. Like they they try and replicate this mo- this moment in almost every creep show segment in the TV show where he says in a, a, a final line he goes, "I can hold my breath a long time," <laughs> and then. And then you see the terror in his eyes and then it freeze freeze frame panels yeah. and does sort of like what I'll call a splash page for the rest of the episode yeah. on, on that. And then we're we're off to the crate. Yeah, defiant to the end. Uh, the the crate. So I have mixed feelings about the crate. I love the monster design. I think it, it, it's almost in some way like the quintessential horror segment. I think it's got 
it's got you know people finding a mo- some sort of like you know horror thing and, and using it for their own purposes it has like a go- a big a big creepy monster that's designed specifically for the segment it has like the air of like historical mystery and stuff like that like i said i'm pretty sure there's a segment that's very similar to this in tales from the dark side and how many how many horror anthology segments peter are there where um where it's like someone finds an old mummy or someone finds something that they shouldn't and like how do or do they get attacked by it does it kill people do they use it like this feels like i i and i, I so I, I also understand like it it feels very much like you know anthology horror segment dot text um and i also think it it also creep shows using it as kind of its centerpiece most of the segments are around like 20 25 minutes this one's about 45 minutes um and but i i i have mixed feelings about it i like the design i think the <laughs> if like if the the message of the first one is like hey don't kill people even if they're abusive or that may not be the message but that's like the creep show lesson um and the lesson of of the second one is like, hey, don't mess with what you don't understand, or don't try to get rich. Um, and the lesson of the third one is like, don't don't kill, don't fuck your, don't fuck someone's wife, and and then if you get someone, don't fuck fucking someone's wife. Um, don't kill them. And the last one, which we're talking about, is like, don't be an evil like fucking boss. Don't be Donald Trump or whatever. Don't be Howard Hughes. Mm-hmm. The, the the even the creep show lesson is this because like Hal Holbrook and I'm forgetting his name the the mad scientist from Reanimator they should remember his name because he's fantastic and smart movies the lesson of this is like don't be a annoying wife I I don't I don't okay so I read this segment as because uh, at the end of it the um, the people that commit the the crime are are going to be hunted now by this creature oh I didn't take um, that you take that. I mean, sorry, that's your takeaway? Yeah, the creature's eyes flash inside the crate. The thing is alive and it broke out of the crate. Yeah, but all he wants to do is just live under a stairwell. Yeah, but now he can't live under the stairwell. and he's, he's free of the crate. Yeah, but he just stays under the stair. I mean, I think that's... You think he's going to return to the stairwell? He does return to this. Like, the second he gets a chance, he goes to the stairwell. He never... He doesn't chase anyone... Like if someone go- the final shot, they show that they show the lake and they show eyes flashing and they and you hear the sound of the crate breaking. That things that means the thing is liberated now. It's going to go hunt these guys down. I mean, maybe. I guess I always took it the idea that like it's. I, I think it's. I think that's the language of this movie. Though. I know, but I it's think like it's- that these people are these people think that they're going to spend the rest of their days sort of lamenting this awful this awful night they had. Um, instead, that this thing is going to come back to haunt. See, them. I disagree because that implies that. This movie is like subtly implying that there's comeuppance coming. This movie's entire thing is like comeuppance. I think the comeuppance happens to Hal Holt. I don't think it's subtle. I think it's as subtle as the end of Father's Day where like you don't actually see the rest of the family get slaughtered. But you know that zombie is standing in the kitchen with holding a corpse. <laughs> sure. I, 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 I mean, again, I, I, I'm not going to I'm not going to be that passionately go like you're but I but I do think like. What makes this so creepy is that it's like this weird, bizarre monster that no one's ever seen it. But ultimately, the reason why no one's ever seen it before is it's just been in this crate, not bothering someone under the stairwell for 150 years. Mm -hmm. And like the only time death is brought to anyone is when they bring it out of the stairwell and then it kills people to get back in the stairwell. (laughs) 
<laughs> yeah, yeah. And, and if you go in the stairwell, you're gonna, like, you're now, yeah, now they territory. use it for it. But like, the, I think there's something creepier about a monster who wants nothing but to live in his little cubby hole. And like, and then you know, Hal Holbrook figures out like, oh, this is a way to kill Adrian. Right, like, yeah, it's certainly it's certainly the unique part of the story, yeah. right? It, it's not that the crate is containing it; it's that it considers the crate home because yeah. he's been in there for 147 years yeah. or whatever. Um, and um, the 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 part, okay, so yeah, there's this is a story about how <clears throat> there's an annoying. Uh, haranguing wife, and you're supposed to be kind on Hal Holbrook's yeah, every, side about this. Every, everyone yeah, hates everyone, her. Everyone. You like to go to a party. She's she's mean to everyone. He keeps fantasizing about killing her, but he doesn't have the stones to do it. Yeah, and he keeps having fan- yeah, he keeps having fantasies about about blowing her away, and then everyone um, applauding. Yeah, 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 yeah. And um, he's somebody that is. Um, that his his fatal flaw is his cowardice, not his cowardice to not kill his wife, but his cowardice to not do fucking anything about the fact or say that, like, he's in an abuse. Yeah, is that he, he he's in he's in he's in a shitty situation. He won't get out of it. And like yes, obviously, like abuse victims, like very often, like that's how the the cycles of abuse work. I don't think that that's the power dynamic going on here. Um, where like you can say like oh he's just so he's so horribly abused he can't even imagine living without her hit her right like I don't think that you could take a misogynistic sort of view towards this or to take the truly like real like abuse kind of cycles thing yeah. either. Um, it, I mean I do I do think there's like a, again I think it's just like a goofball like this guy just needs to stand up for himself is the I goal mean, maybe, of the segment. I, he stands up for himself by murdering her because he can't forgive like past slights. I do think that like excuse I'm using this as like a term uh, of like what like the like the bitch wife like trope. Yeah. Right? I mean it is doing yeah. that. Like so I it's hundred percent I don't I don't I don't think it's I don't think it's I think you can say that there's no misogyny in there because I mean they're, they're, no, 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 no. I, I, I'm just saying you couldn't – as a response to this. Like, so what is his response? You couldn't say – you couldn't deploy the the whipped thing. I use that word specifically because that's like a misogynistic yeah. view. Is that like, oh, you should control your woman. You're, you're supposed oh, to – Oh, yeah. It's it's not about like that. It's about like, – It's not about that. It's about him – it's it's not so much about that. It's about him needing to like literally exact any sort of – uh, yeah, just leave. Like, say, say Get out of there. Stop fantasizing about just killing your wife. But ultimately, that's what serves him well, uh, because he's pictured killing her so many times that uh, he has no problem doing it once an opportunity presents itself. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So it's the one that it's the one that it, it bothers me the most because I do think the monster is rad as fuck. I think the monster, monster and again, me. the monster, the idea of like. It's so weird because that's the it, it, what, that part is done so well. I already said this, but like the idea that it's just this monster that just wants to be in his little crate, and it's this like, how has it survived that long? Why does it just want to sit there? Like every opportunity, like it just wants to be in its crate, and it wants to be in right in its crate behind the stairwell. Like that's where it wants to be, and having such a like a specific like. I don't know, agoric-phobic or whatever, like, monster that just just wants to sit under the stairwell. Uh, and, and, like, the way it just sits like it's it, – it does sit like it's just, like, I just would like to sit in peace. Uh, it doesn't, like, run too much. It, you know, it doesn't – it's not, like, tears through the, the the museum. Like, I love all that. And the design is good and the special effects of people getting their throats ripped off and their faces sliced is all really good. I like – I love all that. 
Yeah, yeah, and, and I agree with you. There's some mis- misogyny there. It's just important to kind of target where the misogyny is, and it's about just this guy needs to stand up for himself. And then the segment does seem to sort of pat him on the back when he gets yeah, he gets to play chess his with his friend the rest of his life without that yeah. nagging wife. But I do think the monster is coming for him now that he's been, it's been deprived of its home, right? The, it can't live in that crate under the water anymore. Yeah, I, I guess I don't know why it would be coming. He'd had the opportunity to come for them easily. But there's but there's sound cues of it breaking out. Of sure, the but crate. why would it come for them specifically? Like, even if it did come out of Because they're the only characters we know in the movie. Sure, but... Like, I, 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 I don't... Work. Sure, but I, I think that Creepshow is not subtle. I think it would have, like, it would have shown the monster at their window or something like that, and it, it doesn't do that. So, I don't know. Yeah, but but I, I, I like the idea that they think they got away with it, but... They think they got away with it, but... And this thing is going to hang over their head, like, did we get away with it? Um, and, and also, uh, really describing Fluffy really quickly... Uh, monkey is a monkey with, like, carnivore, long, sharp carnivore teeth. Yeah. That's kind of it's kind of like it's, like it's, uh, it's, it's like Harry from Harry and the Hendersons if it was designed by Tom Savini. <laughs> yes, exactly. Uh, but yeah, let's get to the final. The final segment's my second favorite segment. I think also um, just one like Creepshow works as a whole. I think the third segment and the last segment work under any circumstances. I think they're just they're perfectly horror movies, and you know we. When we did the X-Files, we talked a little bit about there's an X-Files episode called War of the Copenhagens where, like, you know, the the idea of, like, cockroaches burring into your skin and stuff like that. It's such a visceral, real, primal fear. And um, that's essentially the setup here. There's a there's an old, rich guy who kind of lives, like, in a Howard Hughes existence where he's the – he has a lot of money, but he lives in a hermetically sealed li- uh, life. And you just – he exists by, like, yelling at people on the phone and firing people and, like, getting mad at their widow and other things. And, like, the set design here is great. Like, it's, it's all white. It's medical sealants. You know, it has, like, that kind of 80s – technology of like computers and how he's making sure that nothing gets in no no air particles and again he just between making sure his house is clean and going through what is probably like his you know uh his ritual and his processes to keep things clean and and germ free and and insect free he's like you know just being cruel and vicious as only a uh a rich person (laughs) can be um but, you know, it's as part of his complaining and firing people, he knows that he saw a cockroach in his house. And so, like, you know, the big uh, the big scene at the end is that pretty soon cockroaches are pouring into uh, into everywhere, filling up rooms, filling up stuff. And, you know, there's a lot of there's a lot of easy cr- creepiness that comes from that many cockroaches. Uh, not a lot of them were real. I t- They talked about how they like got every cockroach they possibly could and then a lot of them are just like rocks and shit that Tom Zavini put around. And raisins. raisins. Supposedly there's 20,000 cockroaches. I mean, there definitely is a lot. This is not this is not like when you watch uh, Raiders of the Lost Ark in high def with the pit of snakes, the well of souls or whatever where it's like, oh, this is 10% snakes and 90% hoses. Like there's a, yeah, there's a lot yeah. of cockroaches uh, very clearly even in high definition. Um, but yeah, eventually like it you know, they they just pour in forever. They fill up, literally fill up rooms. Like there's a there's a glass room that is like seventy five percent cockroaches, uh, and he gets his just dessert. He tried to keep it out, and eventually, you know, he did 
horrible things and eventually the 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 most vile version of what of the of the pests that he's tried to keep out uh destroy him and eventually from the inside out eventually you see all the cockroaches gone in this great spooky scene <laughs> and um you're like where are they and then they burst out of him and like crawl out of the skin and like yeah i mean viscerally just uncomfortable i don't i don't know anyone that watches like bugs like burrowing out of someone's skin and and like doesn't get some sort of primal like oh I don't like that <laughs> that would that would be bad because we could all imagine that happening and feeling like did you ever read stories about like what happens like when you get a tapeworm or some shit like and it starts coming out of your stomach and then you have to wrap it with a pencil like there's so many horrors like that in the world that you probably read in some sort of weird but true book <laughs> and so yeah it's it's visceral and it's frightening and again the the juxtaposition with that and his hermetically sealed apartment is great this is a great segment a great ending yeah. Yeah, um, there's a lot of cockroaches in the segment, um, and cockroaches make me feel squicky. And after I watched the segment, I thought I saw a cockroach on my floor, but it was just a weird pattern in the wood. Um, so for making me feel that feeling, um, zero out of five. Yeah, I mean that's fair too. Yeah, um, but I do love I do love the the the, the performance here. Yeah. the performance here is incredible. It has to exist on its most- own too because he's just yelling into phones. Yes, I think you'd most recognize the actor as the shitty grandpa from Christmas uh, Vacation. Oh, yeah. Uh, maybe I'm wrong. <laughs> but, uh... Clark! He, it, yeah. <laughs> what a waste of money. Um, Clark, uh... But yeah, this guy... Okay, so... This guy has a corporate enemy who kills himself, and he immediately rejoices, and then the wife calls, and then she's like... She's, like, talking to him, and he's, like, actively dunking on her for her husband having killed himself. And then she, like, puts a curse on him. And then by the end of the segment, everybody is just kind of cursing him, and no one walks in the room to actually see the cockroaches. Yeah. So there's, like, almost an implication to me, like, in creep show logic, these are all definitely, like, literally real. But there's almost an implication to me that, like, this is not real. This is just, like, a supernatural... Like, like, the cosmos takes the thing he's most afraid of, bugs, and dumps tens of thousands of them in his place. Um, and it's, uh, it, I like that this is sort of the ending, because especially if you're like me and you get squicked out by fucking cockroaches, the most vile creatures on the planet Earth. I'd love to get rid of mosquitoes and cockroaches. We don't need either of them. Um, then, uh, yeah, it's, it's, it's. It's, it's it's so uncomfortable. Yeah. It's in like in a, in a way that like I'm like I'm not sure if that's fair. Like, <laughs> yeah, but I guess this is like well, that thing. It always works. Like I mean, actual we've seen a lot of experiences and they get triggered. Yeah, we've seen a lot of movies. horror movies where there's bugs burrowing out of skin, and it I, you know it's one of those tricks that like this is gonna work 100 percent of the time because it's creepy yeah. and who would want that? It's almost not yeah. fair. Um, but it works well here, and then yeah, the ending. That we cut back to the ending capper, um, which is that there's some um, trashmen who are taking out the garbage, uh, and there's the EC. They see the EC comic book that Tom Atkins has thrown away uh, in between Pussy Goblin, and um, they're they're like, oh, we used to read this as a kid too, and they are looking at, oh, look, you can you can uh, you know. You can send away for stuff. They see the voodoo doll and they're like, oh, look, someone cut this out. And then cut back to the kid who purchased the voodoo doll 
from from EC Comics and uses it to uh, enact his revenge at being wronged on his father, uh, noted thespian Tom Atkins. N- noted thespian. Yeah. Um, it's 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 a great closer. The rapper um, Tom Savini gets to play is... one of the trashmen. Uh, yeah, it's, it's, it's wonderful. It, I'm, I'm going to just say, just sort of in closing, if you are not going to build an actual kind of interesting story between the segments, the best way to do it is to have the segment be a setup and a punchline that just happens to be very far apart in time. And this is the way to do it. It takes up very little of your time. If you don't like the setup and the punchline, if you do like it, um, it's still set. Yeah. And then, then you're just getting, I think, I think the first VHS works like this. uh, Okay. Too. Right. Like where you're, you're just seeing, we're watching the videos that the guys find in that, that house. Right. Like, um, and here, like, the, the the how it relates to our wraparound segment is that every story we read is a story from EC Comics that the kid was reading about. So again, in some ways, he's learned the concept of like you know of Old Testament justice and revenge from all these stories that are essentially all about that to some level. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. And I do kind of like that there's a mixed morality here because then it doesn't feel like chick tracks. Yeah. Um. Yeah. So, and that's also what we're going to see in the VHS movies because the very first segment of VHS has a very modern, very clean sort of uh, um, um, ethics um, that's very understandable. And then some of the later ones are just like, hey, you shouldn't have done, been alive and walked into that. Yeah. What if you strapped a GoPro to this guy? (laughs) (laughs) What if, like, one of them in VHS 2 is like, uh, don't get an eye transplant if you're offered one by a hospital. Yeah. How dare you mess with medical science? But again, I think one of the way that like horror morality or creep show or tales from the crypt morality works is like it's not actual like you wouldn't watch this and go this is the morality of the filmmakers behind it. Like it's supposed to be horrific morality, right? That by by the definition, it's it's not supposed to be true justice. It's it's almost the idea of uh, of of justice doled out by 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 I don't know like the Cenobites like it's punishment punishment and horror are sometimes go hand in hand and and Creepshow does a great job of that so yeah this is like if you just if for some reason you've never seen this it's worthwhile it's you get everything that you want from this one you get a an anthology movie that works as a movie it works as individual segments you get comedy you get some truly creepy moments you get to you get to have a really fun cast of people that um you know, before they were famous or when they were at the height of their fame uh, or, or or whatever else. And then you also get like great Tom Savini gore special effects. So, I mean, it really is. I'm not surprised that besides just being a very well-known one with a lot of good pedigree from a horror standpoint, like I'm not surprised on that documentary that this was voted number one. It like it it makes sense in the same way it made sense if we're going to do an anthology horror month. This is what we should kick it off with. Yeah, absolutely. And we're going to transition uh, next week to, I think, what is probably the best uh, version of this that came after in a movie that, as we said, Peter and I are the most qualified people possible to talk about on a podcast, but also a movie that definitely, I think, deserves some significant reappraisal and and – and they talk about this on the documentary for it as well. Like only, only seems more prescient and relevant as horror movies. Like the first segment of this movie doesn't even feel like an exaggeration. <laughs> it just feels like life. 
that we are we are more and more aware of with uh, hearing and, and learning about more and more injustice that goes on uh, against uh, people of color and black people in this country. But yeah, we're going to be covering uh, 1996's Tales from the Hood, uh, and we'll see you uh, next week. Hey, Aaron. Hey. Who? Ah! Ah! Hmm? Thank you so much for listening to We Love to Watch. If you made it to the end, hopefully you liked what you heard today. And if you'd like to hear more, please go to patreon.com slash we love to watch. And if you can chip in a few bucks, that would really help us keep the lights on and keep us moving forward. Uh, it wasn't an implicit threat by Peter. He just didn't know how to say it. But either way, we'll continue to make more. But it would be helpful uh, as we explain to our loved ones where all our money is going, which is all on server space. Uh, <laughs> if you can't, <laughs> uh, if you don't have a few bucks to chip in, we totally understand and you want to support the show. Show, we truly absolutely would appreciate a uh, review on iTunes. I know every podcast says it and it's because it really does help. And so every podcast wants that help. So please go leave us a positive review so that when people find this show organically, they hopefully want to tune in and listen. And thanks again for all of your listenership and support and time throughout the years. Uh, we really do appreciate you uh, with kisses and smooches. Peter and Aaron. <laughs>